Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition podcast series called Culture Crisis Conversations. Art Stays Here is a volunteer nonprofit advocacy group preventing the loss of arts, music, and cultural spaces across greater Boston. My name is Amy Bennett. I'm a founding volunteer and arts administrator. And today we're here with Bill Madsen Hardy, owner of New Atlantic Development. Hi, Bill. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Sure. Why don't we... Um, kind of talk about uh, New Atlantic Development, what you do, what you have done, kind of your ethos. Sure. So New Atlantic's been around since the mid-90s. It was started by another gentleman named Peter Roth, uh, who continued on owning the company until about 2017, which is when I took over ownership Uh, of the company along with my partner, Brian Goldson. Uh, I started working at New Atlantic in 2000, so uh, bulk of my career has been uh, with New Atlantic. Um, And would you consider New Atlantic um, a typical Boston area development company? Um, I would not say typical. I I think we do somewhat unusual projects. I mean, the, the bulk of our work is can really just be described as affordable housing, uh, which is not unusual. It's a little unusual in that we're a for-profit company doing that work, whereas most affordable housing developments are uh, done by nonprofit community development companies. There are a handful of us for-profit companies doing affordable housing, which you know has some benefits because we can often do things that Nonprofits can't because it's not within their mission. You know, maybe doing mixed income or certain kinds of mixed use developments. And we can generally act a little faster or a lot leaner organizationally. But, you know, we often do partner with nonprofits in, in, in our projects. A bulk of our projects over the years have been partnerships with nonprofits in some way, mm-hmm. whether it's a development partnership with another CDC or partnerships with nonprofit social service agencies. Mm. You know, we've done a lot of special needs housing um, and elderly housing, assisted living. Mm. But we've also done a lot of artist housing. <laughs> you know, we're becoming a little bit more known in more recent years for our work uh, on artist housing and artist resources in general. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the arts projects. Yeah, sure. So I guess the, the first sort of arts and cultural project we took on at New Atlantic was right around 2001. Uh, we helped Madison Park, CDC, uh, purchase and rehabilitate Hibernian Hall, which was an old Irish, you know, 
dance hall cultural community center and we rehab that using historic tax credits and a program that was new at the time, New Markets Tax Credits, and turned it into an arts and cultural center along with Madison Park's offices. And then we got, shortly after that project was completed, we were approached by the city of Boston, uh, Department of Neighborhood Development, called at the time. It's now the Mayor's Office of Housing. Uh, DND called us up and said, you know, there's a group of artists living in a building in Jamaica Plain. And it was just purchased by a developer who issued them eviction notices the next day, and they're looking for help. Can you talk to them? Is this Brookside? Yes. This is, this is Brookside. Uh, we never gave that project any kind of fancy name. It was always Brookside Live Work Project. So all, all of these projects I could probably talk about for hours. But well, let's just give an overview of Brookside. So like how many units and... Yeah, so, you know, it was an, it was an old uh, rubber factory, the Stedman Rubber Factory, and it had just been moved into by a collection of both artists and small businesses. There was a contractor there. There was a plumber there. There was a theater production person there. So there was some just commercial use, but there was also many people actually living there, which made all the difference. You know, if it had been all commercial, uh, the developer could have kicked them out and and moved ahead. But because there were people living there, and you know, housing residential tenancy laws are so much more protective than you know commercial laws in mm-hmm. Massachusetts and most mm-hmm. places mm-hmm. that the people living there were were able to go f- to the housing court and get a stay of the evictions and brought the developer to the to the table to negotiate. So we helped the tenants form. A, a company. In that case, it wasn't a nonprofit, and I can get into why. But we formed we formed a special purpose limited liability company um, with with the with the artists, and we made an offer to the guy and basically paid him what he paid for the building, plus maybe a little, little bit extra to just walk away. Mm-hmm. And he accepted it, and there we were. We we owned the building. <laughs> Um, so the tenants there really wanted a permanent place to live and do their art. So we, we decided to make the project into a condominium project. And, and we basically uh, you know, hired an architect and sat down with each of the tenants there and said, okay, what do you need? What, what does your space need? <laughs> um, you know, for your living, your art. And we really sort of custom uh, designed all the tenants' units. How um, many units? There ended up being 24 okay. uh, in the end. I think there were maybe six or eight, something like that, that weren't accounted for, that were essentially new units being added. But we had uh, one 
uh, artist who was a circus performer. She performs on on ropes. Oh yeah, so silks. We, yeah. We we basically built a three story volume so she could suspend a rope and practice her her art wow. in, in her unit. So that was pretty cool. So I've actually been uh, to one of the many times we've spoken. My friend is Bob Maloney, one of the uh, original artists. Uh, owners. He still lives there. He's now there with his wife. And uh, the live space is totally separate from the workspace, but his workspace is in the basement. And it's, it's not a typical basement. It's, you know, and he has all kinds of shop materials and places to work. And it's pretty big. You know, it's not small and it's not like a cramped, dank, gross basement. And then he has his live space. And then you're also living amongst other creatives, which even though you have your own thing, it is a little community and um it's still living and breathing so thank you for doing that and um bob would say it changed his life and it's like maybe one of the best things he's ever done so you should know that a good deed was done and is still living and breathing now yeah well you know that was the first one the 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 first of several i've been asked why you know i like working on artist projects in particular and i think brookside had a lot to do with it, I actually made good friends there in, in that process. And, you know, artists are just kind of fun people. <laughs> to, Depends to, who you ask. <laughs> well, you know, to hang around. I, I've, you know, I've al- always appreciated and admired and maybe I've always been a little envious of, of people who are, you know, are artistic because... I'm 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 not. <laughs> you so, are with creating funding sources. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the the art of financing, mm-hmm. uh, if you can call it that. But you know, I just, it's just it's just fun. You know, it, it, it's a fun atmosphere, and you know, it's it's very rewarding. I mean, all affordable housing is, is rewarding. You know, it's it's super rewarding to see a single mother and her two young children being moved out of a homeless shelter into a brand new unit. You know, which happens and you know that's what i mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what i do it for I, mm-hmm. I do it for you know the people that are going to be there and i would say sometimes that makes you one of the things not a typical developer uh, you know I, I i hope so i you know i'm 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 still a developer i still have to make money i i still have to be an opportunist mm-hmm. but we do have a mission you know at, at new atlantic uh, i i could very easily 25 years ago or at any point in between said, you know, I just want to make bank. I'm just going to go work for a huge real estate investment trust. And, you know, well, I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, this is this is it's much more rewarding. Um, Being your own boss is pretty great. Well, and there's definitely also. there's definitely a human aspect. I mean, not just the mother out of a shelter, but um, all of the artists and all that. There's a lot of people involved. Like you're touching all of these communities. It's not just one. I mean, there's many artists involved every single time, and that can also be somewhat challenging. But there's a lot of humans involved. So what happened after Brookside? So after Brookside, you know, we had that experience. There was. There was a city-owned parcel in the south end, and they put out an RFP, and they were calling for uh, artist housing. And there was vacant land, but there was also an old school building, the Joshua Bates School on Harrison Ave by the Boston Medical Center. And it was tenanted by artists 
not live, work, just work. work only commercial spaces. So, you know, we put in a bid to build housing, new housing on the vacant land and to take over the Bates, the Bates Art Center. And the the new housing we did, we did as, you know, home, home ownership uh, condos. Back up a little, a little bit, and in general, say developing affordable home ownership uh, in Boston is much more difficult than rental. For rental housing, there is a slew of of resources, including low income housing tax credits and 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 many other resources. Uh, at some point, uh, the the state housing agency decided they wanted to put all of their resources into rental housing. So they stopped funding affordable home ownership. So, you know, in, in a rental project, if I need, say, $300,000 of subsidy per unit, it's usually, you know, 100000 from the city, 200000 from the state, or 150, 150 something like that. But if I'm doing home ownership and I need 300 a unit, now the city has to put in $300,000 per unit. So, you know their their money is going half as far, or you know a third as far. Uh, so it's it's been difficult. So a, a good way um, to generate equity in a in a affordable condominium project is to have it be mixed income. So that project was uh, fifty four units, uh, half of half of which were affordable, half of which were market rate. The affordable units were set aside for artists who had uh, Boston Artist certification. certification. And they were 1,000 and 2,000 square foot units that I believe we sold for 170000 and $190,000 respectively. So, What do you think they're worth today? If they were on the market, those units are probably... I'd say six or seven hundred thousand. I would say more eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we we did that project. So now you know we got a couple wins, a couple under our belt, and then in I think it was around 2013, we were called by the city again. Hey, New Atlantic, uh, there's another group of artists who you know, might get displaced because their building is up for sale. Uh, and that, that building happened to be uh, the Midway Studios in Fort Point. There was a developer who was much like New Atlantic. He was New Atlantic before there was a New Atlantic. He was a, a, a great guy who did a lot of innovative projects all over Boston and Massachusetts. His name was Bob Keene. And Bob... Uh, unexpectedly passed away somewhere around 2008, I believe. And he had no family, had no heirs, and he had this huge portfolio of properties. So it went into Probate. an estate trust and law, you know, a couple lawyers were in charge of uh, disposing of all his property. So there actually ended up being two artists properties that were being put on the market, Midway Studios and Walter Baker Lofts. So I can kind of talk about both of those because they 
sort of went down in the same way. They're a little different. Walter Baker's pretty small. It's only 13 units, and it doesn't have any commercial space or anything. Pretty pretty straightforward. Midway is a big building. It has 89 units, but also has about 24,000 square feet of commercial space. So whereas, you know, uh, Walter Baker, I think we bought it for like $200,000. Midway Studios was a $20 million acquisition. So at the time, at, at that time, yes. And, you know, so this this model of going in and working with the tenants this time we did create a nonprofit and again the, because it was going to be held long term for for rental rather than being sold off as condominiums like like Brookside was that's why we needed a a nonprofit we set up a nonprofit that had tenant participation on the board of directors along with New Atlantic we were able to put together a financing package to come up with the $20 million. It's an operating property. It had a lot of cash flow, so we were able to use that to get sort of a conventional loan. We got a HUD-insured loan for, I think, $15 million of that. that. That was a big piece of it. The city of Boston put in a million dollars. And then we got another $3 million from uh, Blue Hub Capital, who has been a very important partner to New Atlantic over the years and have been involved in a lot of these projects and, and often don't get the credit uh, that, that they deserve because they really come in with early at-risk capital on these projects, sometimes with no security at all. So in this case, they wanted security. They wanted a, a guarantee. And the HUD mortgage also you know, required some level of guarantee. So a, you know, a group of tenants can't just form a nonprofit and say to the world, you know, give me $20 million, right? It just it doesn't work that way. You need to have a partner that has uh, you know, a balance sheet and real estate experience, you know, so, someone that people are going to feel comfortable trusting trusting, and, and lending money to. We actually had, even with, with those sources, we had about a million and a half dollar shortfall. And w- this was back when crowdfunding was becoming uh, more and more popular. And we had a crowdfunding group that wanted to work with us, and we were trying to get that established, and then they couldn't get their platform off the ground and kind of left us high and dry. So the tenants themselves really picked up the slack and were able to raise the $1.5 million dollars. And what we did was basically create our own sort of crowdfunding resource. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not as easy as just asking people to write a check for you. You know, when you're taking in uh, people, pe- a lot of different people's money, that's an investment vehicle. Mm-hmm. So it's automatically subject to state and federal 
laws, you know, SEC, blue sky laws, all, all of that. So we ha- we had to hire an attorney and put together a, like a 200-page <laughs> investment prospectus wow. and, um, you know, get all of that approved just to be able to receive money. Um, and we made what I thought was a, a, a good decision of allowing a, a minimum investment, which was pretty small, of $1,000. So that really allowed uh, almost all of the residents in in the building were able to participate. Put, put something in and participate and and feel like they were invested in, in 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 their living environment which isn't always the case in a rental situation right people right. always complain well renters you know aren't invested like homeowners and all that. so it was a good outcome i was going to say model but again that's a that's a hard model to replicate um all of these we yeah, have yet to find it, it, one <laughs> ex- exactly and and when we, when when we step back and you know we're talking about this globally that's sort of the big issue is you know all of the projects that i've done have been unique and not really replicable Right. Some of the principles carry over from project to project, but none of them, it's not cookie cutter. And part of that is because of municipality and, you know, zoning laws and finances at the time, different types of artist group. The artist groups, I can tell you that you and I have worked with recently. Um, I don't know that people could come up with their buy-in to something like that. So Midway is a giant project with lots of funding sources um, the outcome is 89 units. Those are not purchased. Those are rent. They're rental. Yeah. And it is mixed income. There are uh, market rate units there. And then there are, I believe, if I remember correctly, three tiers of affordability. You know, people. And But is it must you have an artist certificate? Is it only for artists? Uh, yes. The art. The yes. There is. A requirement. And then. Um, what about the commercial space? How did that get transformed? Um, well, or, or who were the tenants? Yeah, I mean, there were tenants when we purchased it, and they weren't necessarily arts-related tenants. And, you know, being in Fort Point, in, in that neighborhood, you know, it's a pretty valuable commodity, right, to have that commercial space, which really helps subsidize the affordable component because uh, what you really mean is ground floor walking level street level exactly yes commercial space yeah okay so you know while we all probably would have liked to kick everyone out and convert all of the space for for various affordable arts uses it just you know wasn't financially realistic so you know we had some market rate tenants. Um, over time, the tenants and the tenant association actually pulled off uh, having some of the ground floor commercial space be turned into sort of common uh, workspace for for artists uh, in the, in the building. But but by and large, it's just remained commercial. And now, um, from my understanding, there's some I guess what we would call a creative economy nonprofits in there right like um arts and business Council. yes the arts and business uh council was was in there before we came and i believe are still there yep. yeah there, there were some small stage uh, source yep these kinds of things yep stage source has since doesn't exist but mass creative still does yep um so that's a huge success 
Um, did the building need to be rehabbed? And no, uh, the building was in really good condition. Actually, you know, we 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 put some money into it coming on board. We we looked at the property and and identified some 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 work that needed to be done. But no, there wasn't really much heavy lifting. It was completely gut renovated in 2005 and Bob Keane did a great job uh, w- with the building so it was still in in, in, in very good shape and and very and very well maintained too so that was more business and Brookside was both business and physical redevelopment correct yeah okay and Walter Baker uh, 13 units so that's uh lower mills in Dorchester and then let's talk about what came after that. So uh, I guess we can get to our, our favorite project. <laughs> uh, I'll give a little context here. So how you and I know each other and what we mean about art stays here and really bringing artist displacement to the public and making it more visible and trying to make changes around it is from a little property we call 11 13 Humphreys Street in Upham's Corner, Dorchester. However, you were there before even I was there. Talk about the very beginning of your connection to that property. Yeah, it was a, a little bit different than the previous Just a projects. <laughs> well, in, in that the the first person to ever contact me about the property was actually Jim Cooper, Jim Cooper the, the previous owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was just starting to consider a sale of the property. And I'll he, give a little background, sorry to interrupt. So ahead. Humphrey Street Studios was originally in the 1800s, a commercial dry cleaner owned by the Dallows family. Over time, generation, life, industry, things happen. And in 2002, a four-person artist group uh, bought the property. So that was Joe Wheelwright, famous sculptor who has since passed, Neil Wadette, a sign maker, sculptor, also since passed, Peter Haynes, also a sculptor, still with us, and Jim Cooper, real estate attorney. And that four, that group of four, bought Humphrey Street Studios property in 2002 and turned it into artist studios, different sizes, different types. And when Jim Cooper contacted you was probably 2019, maybe, because two of the founding owners had passed away. People were starting to get into their later years and the widows and everyone involved decided that it was time to sell. Yes. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, 100 year old ex-commercial dry cleaning facility in a residential neighborhood <laughs> in a residential neighborhood <laughs> that's usually you know any, any developer would turn around and walk away and you would call that right what we've called it a dirty property yes and um, what we mean by that is that because it was a dry cleaner they of course use um, industrial chemicals to clean not just clothing museum rugs tapestries uh textiles yeah. And um, all of that stuff goes into the ground. Or, or it shouldn't, but can and, and did. Not to mention, you know, I think there were, you know, three or four underground storage tanks at, at various points. Some were left in the ground and rotted through. So, yeah. So 
in, environmentally there there were challenges, um, but also you know you have a an old building that you know artists took over and you know started building out space kind of in an ad hoc way, not always to code. to code or using the best building practices, and that kind of just you know blossomed over time and was was a great resource you know un, under those those owners um it was it was it was a great property so when you were first contacted and so, you came to view the property yeah so so yes jim jim contacted me and he contacted me because he was going around to various banks to try to get a loan because various people had told him that you'll never be able to sell this property because of the the contamination, the condition of the property, the fact that there are 45 or 50 artists in here <laughs> um, which are going to make going to make kidding. life hell for yep. anyone, you know, uh, wanting to take over. And Jim didn't believe that, so he thought all right, I'll I'll just go and ask a bank for a half million dollar loan just just to prove that it's saleable, that, meaning it's mortgageable. That that it's mortgageable. That that banks are going to be okay with it. So bank after bank after bank turned him down. So he got pointed to a local nonprofit mission based lender uh, who he thought he would have better luck with. Was that uh, Blue Hub? That was Blue Hub. <laughs> um, and Blue Hub, you know, kind of listened to him and took in all the information and said, yeah, this is a tough one. Why don't you reach out to these guys over at New Atlantic? <laughs> you know, if anyone can can help you figure this out, you know, it's probably them. So that's why Jim reached out. You know, at that time, you know, he was talking about a, a sales price that I thought was way too high. And there were, you know, the environmental concerns were considerable. So I basically said, no thanks. But, you know, if you ever actually get an offer on this building, a, a real offer, let me know. There was a period of, of, of silence. And then... Had you met any of the artists at that time? I, I had. I had gone out and toured the property. I think I don't even think Jim met me. He just sent me out to the property and set me up with uh, a few of the people who were out there to to take me around mm -hmm. to, to look at it. Let's talk about what you saw when you arrived because I think it's an interesting it's a, we call it sometimes a little campus. Yeah, you know, for me it was it, it, exciting. You know, some people are put off, you know, when they see buildings that need a lot of work and it's very hodgepodge and lots of crap everywhere and the hallways. So I want to point out it's not just one building. It's actually a series of buildings. It starts with one one front building and then a series of back buildings that are somehow connected into a little like you say hodgepodge <laughs> campus divided up into different sized individual private artist studios. And the artists who are in there are all different kinds of people from all different kinds of ages, from all different countries and places who work in all kinds of disciplines, including light fabrication to regular studio painting artists, everything in between, 
I've never seen such an organically, actually diverse group of people in anything I've ever done. I don't know if you have. Um, no, I'd, no, not quite. Um, given the number of people that are there and the the variety of work that's done there, even just the num- uh, the languages that people speak yeah. is. I mean, there, we have immigrants from Argentina and from Venezuela and from France and from Russia and Cape Verde and Haiti and there are so many different people. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's in Dorchester, which is you know probably our more most diverse you know neighborhood in it's Boston. True. So it's kind of reflective of where it is, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And you know, you want to maintain that, and you know that's what always gets me. You know, is once I start meeting people and getting in there, and it's like, oh, you know, my, I, I had kind of written this project off as impossible, but now, now, Wait, let, let's now say there's that. a little extra motivation. You wrote motivation. this project off as impossible. Well, it, lots of people did. Yeah, at that price and, On paper, and, and, and given given the, what he, he wanted for the bill, it, you know, it just wasn't possible. And I, and I knew that wasn't going to happen. So we're kind of waiting around to see what would happen. And, and as, as I said, there was maybe a year or more where we didn't hear too much about it. And during that time, to uh, his credit, uh, Jim Cooper c- continued to work with his environmental consultant and to take further steps uh, to try to mediate the or Effects. remediate mm-hmm. the contamination or, or deal with it as as best he could, but you know, with within the the law, you know, the, this is this this was not uh, while while the building itself was kind of run in a little bit of a haphazard way. The the environmental issues, you know, were uh, by the book, very by the book, because it's the law. The, yeah, the Department of Environmental Protection, you know, had this property in its site. Mm-hmm. There, there were something like 17 filings between 2000 and 2019, you know, when we looked on the DEP website of spills and, and, and issues. So there were, so there were, it was still an open site when Jim had approached me. So Jim was able through working with his consultant to reach what they call a permanent solution for the site, which is sort of a closeout in terms of the Department of Environmental Protection. They say, okay, you've done everything you reasonably can, and the results, the the indoor air testing, soil um, testing, soil te- all around, every, everything is, is within acceptable limits now. So now Jim... I think was starting to think again. Okay, now now I might have some traction, and then I think that's when some of the tenants started to see, you know, some, some suits walking around. Okay, you know? yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, starting to get a little a little nervous about the property. So uh, what we mean we sold. mean by that is that there's another development company called Core, a uh, really big company, and they, as far as I know, from I because I entered right after they pulled out, but that they had gotten to PNS. Is that accurate? With core, I don't 
think they did. Okay. I think they, they were, were close to they it. were close to it. But that but that's what really lit a fire under us. Mm-hmm. That's when I started getting calls from the tenants and the city. The city at that point was more active. So I reached out to Jim and you know I learned about all the stuff he'd done environmentally and he started to uh, express a willingness to come down on on the price down to what you know what I thought was reasonable we were trying to get there so I thought you know we 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 had something going and that's when another yet another developer came in after are you talking about Milo? Yes. Oh, well, let's let's put a let's go back okay. a little bit. So, as Core, major development company, gets close to purchasing the property, artists, tenants are calling you in the city and what's going on. I was even told that Core had circulated drafts of leases, that it, and that's what the tenants were like. What's going on here? What's going on here? The pandemic had started. I was contacted by Christina Tedesco, one of the tenants. Uh, who I knew through theater, in about, I want to say, May or June, the first year of the pandemic, so that's 2020. And she came to me because she had talked with Chief Elliot Ortega at the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture saying, what can we do? Is there any recourse for us? We we fear we're going to be displaced. And she said her best advice was, you really need to come together as a group. All the artists need to unite in one voice, and you need to start to make some noise. She interpreted that as, maybe we need a publicist. And I was a publicist, so she contacted me. It was actually she and Frank Crishone, who you may remember, was a furniture maker and tenant at Humphrey Street, who um, has since uh, moved on to a different place. And we had some initial, you know, trying to understand all this, like, who are the owners and what's the problem? And you know, what about the toxicity and what's going on and can we buy it? Could we be a co-op? How does any of this work? And I said to them, I don't think you only need a publicity campaign. You need a preservation campaign. And we were all kind of like, what does that mean? (laughs) And what is that? And what do we do? And that might have been when we first talked to you. So I, as an independent consultant, volunteered to help this group of artists. So first we decided to start a steering committee to work on this preservation campaign. And then we decided we needed a tenants association. And then we started talking to Jim Cooper, the owner's uh, representative, and we told him everything that we were gonna do and that we wanted to preserve it as artist studios. At the time he had told us that's great, but you know it's unlikely that you guys will be able to get it together and he and the four owners and the widows were really anxious to sell and he would give us basically six months to try to kind of find a solution and we took that to heart and we started meeting with all kinds of people with elected officials with different departments at the city with you with the arts and business council with um historic preservation landmarks commission all kinds of things and um, about halfway during that, and, and oh, and we uh, got help from the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture to do a feasibility study, and we hired you, New Atlantic, to do that. Can you explain to people what a feasibility study is? Sure. A feasibility study, I mean, we, we do a feasibility study for every project we look at, right? 
So, you know, they can be formal or, or informal. But basically, you are looking at a property. You are looking at, you know, what what is the intended use you want there? Is that use allowed by zoning? And if it isn't, uh, is there a good chance of getting a variance? Or are those hurdles going to be too high? Does what you're what you're doing there fit, you know, contextually in in, in the neighborhood? And you look at other factors, environmental factors, you know, title review, things like that. But mostly it's about the money mm-hmm. and figuring out, can I afford this? And so you're looking at an acquisition price. Then you're looking at, in, in this case, and this type of property, can I operate the property? So can I acquire it? And then can I operate it? With rental incomes from kind of affordable right. artist rents. Let's also uh, give some context to the back parcel of the property, which we haven't. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, one of the things that this property had going for it and probably what made it attractive to others at all and what helped in our purchase is the fact that there was about 10,000 square feet of vacant land behind the buildings that were a part of the sale. So we were able to break up the purchase price that Jim wanted and uh, basically assign a third of it to the vacant land. And we were able to get a million dollars of of subsidy, of housing subsidy from the city based on our plan to build affordable housing back there. Great. So yeah. another mixed use. Yes, right. Interdependent, yep. one side helping the other. Right. Because there just aren't resources for affordable commercial artist, artist studios. Mm-hmm. So they're just, they're, they're, there isn't a program <laughs> yet uh, yet right that's this is what we're we're all working towards so you know yeah again we're um leveraging other resources and i don't know if we'll have time to really get into to this but uh, another project i'm working on now is 2147 washington project and i'll just talk about it just briefly to hi- to highlight that aspect of Humphreys. This is uh, this is Nubian. This is Nubian Square in Roxbury, a f- former city-owned parking lot uh, next to Haley House, which is sort of a Community. institution in yeah. the, in in the in the neighborhood, been there a long time. Nonprofit does a lot of great things. We're building 74 units of affordable housing. Half of the units are going to be set aside for certified artists. Rental or owner? Both owner and rental. More rental than owner, but a mix. And by having that much housing and all of the rental and home ownership subsidies that we have, it is allowing us to build out a f- over 4,000 square foot shared studio space that we are going to equip with 
all you know brand new woodworking, metalworking, fabricating equipment, creative spray tools. booth, all the all the creative tools that kilns you know that that artists in the building will need. So a makerspace, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a twenty eight hundred square foot space in the front of the ground floor, front of the building that we are renting out to a nonprofit dance company oh. for uh, a rent that's, you know, 50% of market. So, um, you know, we would never be able to... Is that office space for them or, or no, actual dance space? performance. Oh, oh yeah. great. Okay. Performance and, and studio class. They do a lot, you know, teaching mm-hmm. um, and, and performance. So, you know, could we ever build a 7,000 square foot facility out of the ground and have a makerspace and a nonprofit dance company? You know, no, that, that would just that it would never work. But it works because it's it's a mixed it's a mixed use. So, you know, that that's sort of the, the one sort of replicable model. Right. But it's difficult. Right. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I've been working on that project since 2018. Uh, we're not going to open our doors and for another year. So end of summer 24, it'll take six months to rent it up. And, you know, that's that's almost a seven-year <laughs> process. But it is the dream, right? Because it melds together all the things that you're interested in, in terms of housing, affordable housing, artist housing, makerspace, helping the arts community and all of it living under one roof. Yeah, and home ownership and being in a community. One one other aspect is we're we're building out a brand new two thousand square foot cafe space for for Haley House. Oh, so they're going to move their cafe right up to Washington Street. They're they're in this the kind corner. of weird building yeah. that's pushed back yeah. off the street, and they've been operating a, a bakery cafe there. Uh, for a number of years, but I think it's going to work a lot better um, being in a brand new space uh, up front. Um, they're not paying anything for it. However, they did own a little piece of the land that our building is going on. So okay. we got we did get something from them, <laughs> you know, the ability to, to, to build on a portion of their land. But then that'll allow them to expand their their other operations in the back of the building. They they do a lot of great things in ter- in terms of providing um a space mm-hmm. for uh chefs and caterers who don't have you know, access kitchen. to a commercial kitchen. Mm-hmm. They do youth training. They uh hire uh, people that ex- are back from incarceration. E- exactly. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so they'll be able to expand all of those programs. So, it's doing a lot for the for the community. And I think we we haven't brought this up uh, explicitly, but how I really sold this project is, it's not just housing, and it's not just we're not just housing, we're not just giving housing units to people who sit around and you know draw in a notebook or paint, paint pictures these are these are small businesses mm-hmm. you know these are creative enterprises mm-hmm. um you know the 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 largest uh growth in in businesses in Massachusetts these days is small businesses and and sole proprietors so by giving some place someone a, an affordable place to live and to work you you're you're not you're not just supporting a housing situation you're supporting an economic 
you know, job situation. Well, and I would also argue that the community that that also builds, because you're talking about a number of units, never mind what's happening on the ground floor and with the Haley House, all of that together, not to say that every single person will collaborate with each other, but it just by osmosis, the energy of people in community who see each other coming in and out every day, maybe work on a project together, or maybe that is irreplicable, undeniable, and hugely important. Yeah, you can go and talk to the to the residents, tenants of all of the projects that we've done that have this sort of scale, and they all benefit from collaboration and shared space and, and shared tools resources. and shared mm-hmm. resources mm-hmm. and knowledge. Art thrives best in a community, in a communal situation. Um, you know, it, it always sort of bothers me. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine um, is, you know, in, in the city we have this inclusionary requirement, right? So if a market rate developer is building in a market rate, condos say in, in Brighton um, they have to have a certain percentage of, of, of affordable units and they often will throw in a, a, you know a two or three artist units you know because it sounds good right it's it's you know it, it's just a marketing political, but they're not at whatever. affordable rate they're at market rate or or even even yeah they may they may not be affordable or they may be they may be counting as they're affordable but it could be a hundred percent oh i see what you're saying ami it's 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 they're like one-offs they're not part of a community exactly so yeah putting two or three units in a big building is not creating a community so is it you know it's helping those artists those three artists but you know, it's just not the same. And it doesn't feed itself, which is the, the whole point. It, it, exactly. So, you know, that's that's what we're we're striving for. And, 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 you know, back to Humphreys again. So able to do it because we're, we were able to mix in a, a, another use where we have subsidies available. We're going to build uh, a 21 unit uh, condominium project. So for sale. All of the units will be um, affordable. Uh, Eleven of the units for uh, households under eighty percent of median income, uh, ten under a hundred, um, and they're going to be live-work units. And there's also going to be some shared workspace in the building, and it's going to be right next to Humphreys. Um, I wish. All Humphreys people could just live there. It would be sweet, but you know that's that's not not how it works. Um, so you know, one one of the, the goals of what we we try to do, and it's kind of a hot, almost a catchphrase these days, but development without displacement. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. The idea that you're trying to uh, develop these projects in a way that they benefit the people who are already in the community, and not you know for the benefit of people necessarily elsewhere. Um, We're also calling that place keeping place where there's been a whole bunch of place making and right. um, And preserving is place keeping, right? Mm -hmm. It's not development per se when you're just preserving there's preservation and of, of resources. And then there's development of resources, you know, and when you develop resources, we try to, develop without displacing you know I, I think the nubian project 
is a great example of this. We designed our project around helping Haley House and to help them maintain their place in the community. That's a big part, um, a big part of it. Um, having units at a, a wide variety of income levels, uh, we have it all there between the home ownership and, and the rental from people making nothing <laughs> uh, up to you know a hundred percent of median income. Four of the home ownership units are actually market rate, and I'm air quoting. No one can see that, <laughs> but you know, they're above the affordable sales prices, but not at the top of the market either. Okay. So, you know, that helps uh, people in the community find what, what fits their their needs. Um, we also try to affirmatively market the units and we'll focus locally before, you know, going broader uh, w- with our marketing. For the commercial space, we've, we targeted... Uh, a minority-led small business um, that serves people in the community. That's easy to do. The tough thing, it comes with the housing. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have federal money and state money and local money all mixed in, you have to play by everybody's rules. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not allowed to say... You know we're we're going to give a preference to people who live in this neighborhood. It, you just you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's it, not allowed. It's not, it's not allowed. That what what the the state has allowed, and I guess HUD and the federal government has has allowed, is a, a maximum of a 75% or I'm sorry, a 70% local preference. So that is allowed, but by local, uh, that, that means Boston. So not Roxbury, not Nubian square. It's all, it's all of Boston. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would, really love to see and I there I think there was even a pilot uh, project around this going forward is, is trying to find a way to have that local preference be a, a smaller you know area a, a, a neighborhood area and you know and it's just a preference it's not saying people from outside mm-hmm. can't also mm-hmm. apply and, and, and get units it, it's it's just you know, well, that would help someone, someone who's in the community, mm-hmm. who's impacted by development. There's a lot of development going on in in, in Roxbury and, and Newby and a lot of affordable housing. You know, roads are shut down all the time. There's banging all the, you know, these are the people who are, you know, also impacted. And, yes, exactly. Uh, by this process of development, you know, which in the long term will benefit the neighborhood. But. If you're someone has to live through ten years of constant construction on Washington Street, mm-hmm. kind of sucks. So, you know, you know, so there there are lots of lots of reasons I think that uh, going to a more neighborhood based preference system would be helpful and would do a lot for that idea of development. Though. Well, I look forward to the doors in Nubian Square being open and seeing how that plays out and 
when and if you have other opportunities to do a similar project like it. I mean, there's 10,000 pieces to it and all interdependent and no small feat. But I think the result is just going to be fantastic. And I'm psyched about it. Let's go back to Humphrey Street, where we were talking about we did the feasibility study. We, the artists, made a tenants association. They all got organized and worked towards the same thing. Had talked with uh, Jim Cooper, the owner, said you'd give us six months to try to find a solution. And about halfway through that, I don't remember how we found out, but they had sold it to another developer, property owner. Um, his name was My Lau. And we were flabbergasted. <laughs> Upset is an understatement. And we didn't understand. What was your recollection of how that happened? Yeah. So, you know, we had, as you you'd said, uh, Jim Cooper said, you know, gave us six months. We were all diligently working during that period, having our environmental uh, consultants re- re- reviewing all the reports because we knew that was going to be still be the biggest issue is, is getting a lender comfortable and you know trying to talk to lenders and talking to Blue Hub in particular about how we could finance it and how we would structure the ownership and we were talking to the city about getting money we were making progress and then yeah one one day we hear. Jim Cooper signed a purchase and sale agreement uh, with, with someone with, else entirely. With, with someone else, without letting us know, which wasn't what we had agreed to. It was pretty evident once we all saw, you know, who who the buyer was, that he was most likely speculating. By that, I mean someone who buys properties and sits on them and sells them <laughs> uh, and, and makes money that way. Or um, he was going to take on a development project, uh, which I really hadn't seen much evidence that he had that experience. But but if he was going to take on a development project, it was 100% certainty that that project would involve uh, demolishing, raising the, the Humphreys buildings, kicking everyone out, and putting in luxury housing. So I will add here that the artists and us were livid. Uh, We had done so much work and were really looking forward to finding a solution and working with you and the city and lots and lots of neighbors in the community. We decided to up the advocacy and we did a campaign where we did an online petition uh, asking for people to support the artist's plan, which was to partner with New Atlantic and keep the studios and build affordable housing. We did a PR campaign that got a lot of media coverage. We did a letter writing campaign to all four owners of the property, as well as my Lao. We took to the rooftops and came up with our slogan, art works here, art stays here. We put banners on the building. We did almost everything that we could think of. And again, this was all during the pandemic. But we had city councilors call people. We had state legislatures call people. I can't even tell you how many conversations all of us had in the hundreds trying to deal with this and make this not happen. And then at some point, the deal fell apart. It worked. It it took a long time and a lot of effort. And we kind of thought... 
this guy's going to, he's going to walk away. Why would he want to deal with all this? But he, he, he stayed on, he stayed on for, <laughs> for, for quite a while. It was, it was surprising. He but, blocked us out. <laughs> yeah. But, but eventually he did walk away. And, and then at that point, yeah, we came in and, and I, th- I think we were ready. Um, and Jim Cooper decided to yeah. accept your offer. Accepted our offer and we made it happen. <laughs> Well, that was it, it, it. Now that we're saying it, it sounds a lot like less dramatic than it was. But it was a lot of hair on fire and a lot of bluster and a lot of posturing and um, a lot of the relationships were tainted and fatigued and um, it was really really hard. But he accepted the offer and that was heroic. So basically, you put together. Uh, creative financing between some subsidy from the city, mortgages from Blue Hub and Lisk, plus your affordable housing project in the back. That's right. And it worked. We got Blue Hub comfortable with the environmental status. You know, the, the, the numbers worked out. We were able to essentially, you know, keep all of the existing tenants there, paying their existing rents. You know, we have started a system of small rent increases. Uh, We made a promise uh, early on that no one would ever have more than a 3% increase to their rent in any one year. And we've stuck to that. And, you know, the property from a financial operations is doing very well you know we bought it and then we're like okay now we have we to have, repair it now we have this building that has, has a lot of needs so step two uh which we're we're right in right in probably still in the early stages of you know needs a lot of work we immediately uh, applied to the city under the community preservation act and got some preservation funds a good chunk of money over six hundred thousand dollars which mm-hmm. thank you city yeah which most most of which is going into the to the roofs mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. kind of boring <laughs> so these properties need a lot of repair there's a lot of well especially the roofs there's like you know it's old and yeah. uh, a lot of it is in disrepair so over time there'll be lots of uh, improvements and something that we actually forgot to say is that Aside from the creative funding, at least on the artist studio side, meaning not the residential side, created a nonprofit organization, and that nonprofit board is seven seats by design. It is four artist tenants, two from New Atlantic and one from the city of Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. So it's a group effort of stakeholders. But the thing that I often like to emphasize is four artists. That means majority, which also means majority artist owned and operated, which is outrageously amazing considering where all this started. Between being a dirty property, not mortgageable, it being almost sold two times that we know of, potentially lots of others, a pandemic, and every single person along the way saying, this will never be done. It's still kind of hard to believe that on November 19th this past year, uh, we celebrated a ribbon cutting of the new Humphrey Street Studios. It was also made officially Art Stays Here Day in the city of Boston. And that was when we publicly launched the Art Stays Here Coalition, which went on to help other projects. And now Humphrey Street Studios is secure in perpetuity. 
which is also shocking. And now comes the other side, you know, on the on the on one side, preservation and trying to get it and dealing with chemicals and government and other owners and other buyers and it's not just hunky dory. There's putting leases together and there's uh, what happens when tenants transition out and new ones come in and then there's uh, artists who have never been on a board and property management and uh, writing grants. There's been some things about security. There's the group itself has had some growing pains about, well, do we need a tenants association anymore now that we're, you know, artists own and operated majority in perpetuity. And for me has been super interesting. I'm sure it has for you too, going from where we were before to where we are now and uh, kind of watching the growing pains. And it's been one of the most rewarding projects I've ever worked on. It's made me want to do this work with others, including some of those artists, to help other artist communities that are at risk of being displaced, which are many. And I've even started to hear people say now that people are starting to look at it, meaning the whole problem of artist displacement. People are taking notice. People are getting involved. Some traction has been made across the city and region with trying to stop some of the displacements. We are actually talking about policies and protections throughout the region to actually stop this. So given your many projects and many experiences, especially working with government uh, and funders and so forth, zoning, what is your prescription for how to stop artist displacement? So first I'll, I'll say that all the projects that I've done that have been successful because we, we've talked about the successful ones. There have been many that didn't happen, right? Well, let's, there, let's there, actually talk about that there, for a minute. There, Say yeah. why they don't happen. Yes, there, there, there have been some artist communities that uh, we were not able to save. And I think the key ingredient in the communities that were saved was the tenants. The tenants themselves and their ability to come together, organize, have the willpower. Because if, if, if that's not there, it's it's impossible, right? I, I can't do my job in, in these projects if if there's not a real partnership with the tenants. And you know, not every tenant is gonna get involved, but you know, you have to have at least you know a core group of people mm-hmm. that are committed to it. And all of the projects did. Humphreys may, you know, maybe more <laughs> than 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 any of them. So that's sort of a key ingredient to success. And I think you all realize that. And you know, that's not always an easy thing for for artists. Um, oh no, I'll tell you that in all the projects that we have worked on and are working on, which there are about ten getting engagement from the actual artist tenants, whether they're artists or musicians, is actually the hardest part, yeah. which is was news to me. I thought getting help from government and getting funding and getting support in the community would be the hardest things. And it's actually trying to educate tenants about this stuff, about advocacy, which is not intuitive, and how to navigate all this stuff, which is foreign to most people, and also takes a really long time. And when we're talking about artists and creatives, and this is a general statement, this is not true across the board, 
a lot of artists don't do it for a living, so that means that they might have a job, one or two. They're doing their art in addition to working. They might have a family with kids or taking care of parents. And life, you know, life happens. And then adding this foreign advocacy that you don't know how to navigate and what is it going to get you might seem ridiculous. It might seem like it will never happen and never work. And why take the few extra hours you might have in your life to that? That being said, like you said, in all of the projects, we do have a core group of people. We have three, four, five, six, seven on a steering committee each each step of the way, even in groups of musicians where there's one community, Charlestown Rehearsal Studios, there's 700 musicians there, and we the, our core group is six people. So you only need a, a core group of people to do the work on behalf of everybody. But I will say just this world of advocacy coming together, showing up for community meetings, learning about government process. It is an uphill climb with a bag of rocks and you're getting pelted by snow every step of the way. Yeah, no, it's hard, but but you're but now, you know, the art stays here, the coalition, you're there. You you are that resource. You know, there there wasn't anything like that before. So these tenant groups, these these artists were on their own mm-hmm. and you know like you said it, it's hard for them to organize a lot of times even you know it's not i'm not saying i tried to save everyone like mm-hmm. some they, they go and i you know never even heard of that one or, but you know sometimes uh like the artists you know don't trust me mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know they're like mm-hmm. why why do i want to start talking to a real estate developer like oh, yeah. you know so there you know mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of trust issues I, that was definitely the case in, in, in with one community in particular where we found out about it the city knew about it asked us to help and we reached out and said you know we can help you this is what we'll do you know and i we could just tell that they didn't want us involved they didn't trust us and we kept development has gotten a bad name yeah and and you know i I, i'm not gonna defend Mm -hmm, (laughs) uh, mm -hmm. developers in general but by the time they finally agreed okay maybe we need some help it was too late the property was under purchase and sale agreement and Mm -hmm. you know the 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 seller was you know was not going to be pressured or anything it was done it was Mm -hmm. it was it was gone so it, it, it was just too late. So that's, you know, the biggest problem is not, not being organized early enough and taking action early enough so that you can come in and develop a plan and try to purchase the building and try to be competitive with what the – because most sellers – you know, they're, they're selling. They they want their. They want to do it quick. They want right? to do. They want to do the easiest way. And you know, right. and no, and that's actually in a lot of ways understandable because you're talking about a lot of money. It takes a long time to go through a sale. Oftentimes, the first deal doesn't go through, and you might you know go through five different buyers, sellers, etc. And what the stuff that you're working on with the artists takes a long time to put together. And sellers often don't want to wait or they don't trust and i think even that was the case with jim cooper at street he didn't trust that we could actually get it done because he himself had been told so many times that the place was unmortgageable so the idea that a bunch of artist tenants during a pandemic could figure out how to do this i can see why he 
didn't think that was the case. But that's also the case across the board here. I mean, right now with the coalition, we're helping people that there's no possible way that they can stay where they are, but maybe we can help get them relocated. And also, we're going to be talking with Brendan Killian uh, a few minutes from now. And although he advocated and tried to organize, and I think at one point might have even gotten to you, that building was redeveloped. However, I think there was a limit on how it could get developed. So it's we have actually a lot of sad stories. We have a lot of stories of loss. We have um, the city or the MAPC has come up with hundreds of thousands of square foot loss of creative space in just our city, never mind our region. Yeah. And and it's gonna and it's getting worse. I mean the the loss of of art and cultural space, uh, the housing crisis, <laughs> the homeless crisis. Uh, We're all, all fighting all, for all, space. All of these th- right, all of these things that are big big news and big topics in in the city today are all symptoms of the 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 greater problem of of growing and ever expanding income inequality mm-hmm. right and you know more more people are getting getting pushed out of boston cuz they can't afford to live here 20 years ago you know if there was an artist group in the south end and that block you know was the the latest to you know get gentrified and I was like, all right we'll just you know we'll pop over to jp or or or, or dorchester or, or roxbury Not, you know they're, no they're just they're just aren't <laughs> right there's nowhere else to there, go there's nowhere else to go at, at, at this point so it's it's really becoming critical and i think that has amplified the issue um, just like housing, you know, people are po- politicians are talking about housing more than they than they ever have. Mm-hmm. It used to be a taboo sort of topic mm-hmm. um, because it, now you can't it, get away from it. Right, there are huge issues, and you're not going to solve those problems without huge, <laughs> you know, societal, Group economic, structural mm-hmm. changes. But other things that we can do, yes. So, you know, the advocacy is is excellent. Having you know the the city and the surrounding areas working together with MAPC mm-hmm. and you know finding all the places identifying the places that are at risk you know the, those are all helpful it, it really it, it comes down it comes down help. to mm-hmm. it comes down to to money but mm-hmm. you know if you know if there could be a program and 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 funding and you know there there are ways there are some creative ways to do that and uh, another non-financial way to do it, it is a way uh, that affordable housing can be increased through zoning and mm-hmm. zoning incentives. Mm-hmm. You know, we give developers zoning a square foot bonus. If they include a certain amount of affordability, they get to build more densely, right? Mm-hmm. So you get affordable, more affordable units. They get more units. It, it, it makes financial sense to them. It doesn't cost the city mm-hmm. anything, right? Mm-hmm. You, could do, you could have a program like that for artist workspace. One thing that... I believe is in process now and would be replicable. And this this has been used for other purposes in the past, but tax increment financing districts. There is a, a tax increment financing district being proposed for Nubian Square, uh, by, which is you know a, a state-designated cultural district. So a, a tax increment financing district works is basically you know it's usually a small geographic area and you know there's agreement that future increases in tax tax income 
within that region, a portion of it gets set aside for a specific use. Oh, that's so, like the South End. So you're not taking, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're uh, diffs and tiffs. They're, they sometimes come in with different labels, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of the same concept. And, and people are working on trying to get a, a, a tiff in, in Nubian, which requires not only lo local uh, approval, but also state state approval. So that's that's something that could be done for arts and cultural space that doesn't require any any current outlay of cash. You're just setting aside future income tax growth aside for that purpose. I've also been thinking about why can't we advocate for a CPA model? That, look at that model. Look at the amount of money it, it, that that brings right. in. Right, a, a, a direct. A direct. We're talking about creative tax, preservation. Right. Uh, yeah, the Community Preservation Sorry, Community Act. Preservation. Um, and this is, is specific to the city of Boston. Most communities in Massachusetts have it. So there is enabling. There was enabling legislation at the state that cities and towns could elect to adopt the Community Preservation Act, which allows them to have up to a 2%, I think, tax um, added onto, onto prop, real estate tax, property tax. And that money would be uh, collected and set aside for one of three uses, uh, historic preservation, affordable housing, and open space. Right. And communities can decide how they want to uh, distribute those funds between those those three uses. I think there's a minimum. You have no one can be below ten percent, but um, you can sort of prioritize. So adding to that, um, or something, or something similar like to it, that, yeah. or expand an, an expansion of that, adding a fourth category, and, and, right. and allowing a, low, a two and a it's quarter a low percent, lift, like right. administratively, and could make yeah. a huge difference to solving this decades long problem yeah and has such a a broad impact I, I think you know maybe having some advocacy around getting some sort of economic uh, benefit study by you know economists you know economics department oh, about Harvard the impact of arts and culture on economies it, 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 yes. it, exactly the the idea of of you know s subsidizing creative small businesses who produce goods and hire people you know and and workforce. and create mm -hmm. jobs mm -hmm. you know it's 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 about it's about workforce and, and, and economy and, and growing small small businesses thinking about it in those larger terms I think helps you know sell the idea politically but you know the, there are also just many more demonstrable benefits to, to that money, mm -hmm, you know, it's mm -hmm. um, you know, like affordable housing. You know, people who are against you know sub subsidies of, of all sorts, but af affordable housing, and and I always say, you know, what what do you think? You know, like someone who gets a Section Eight, you know, certificate for five hundred bucks a month to help you know pay, pay pay their housing or or these subsidies, what, what do you think happens is happening with that money? It's not like the people aren't eating it, you know? It's not being consumed and then gone. That money, that, that's money that's... Goes back into that, the community. That goes back into the community. It's be, being put back into the economy, you know? It, it's no different it, than when we got the stipends during the pandemic. It was the right. exact same thing. Stimulus, right? Yeah, and I, and I think... You know, a lot of lessons to be learned from that. Will will they ever 
apply I, I i don't know but wow it turns out you just you give people in need money <laughs> you know, it it you know things you know things go down you know people's health and health improves uh you know their their diets improve you know it's their longevity their longevity <laughs> right right it's like wow shocking mm-hmm. well and another thing that um similar to that that christina talks about a lot is one of the reasons why she wants to go beyond the work at Humphrey Street and to work with the coalition is to have conversations about the value of artists. You know, that's advocacy. It's a, it's a whole other topic. But we're, I mean, we're talking about spaces so that artists can do their work and contribute to economy and community. You know, she talks a lot about really just trying to, to amplify, uplift, and unpack how artists and arts, not just for the economy, but for well-being and good lives. And, you know, during the pandemic, all, well, not all anyone did, but uh, a lot of people made it through by watching Netflix. That's, you know, you could talk about how creative that is. You need writers, you need actors, you need designers, you need people to do the filming and the editing and sound design and on and on and on. Or there is so much about art in everyday life that people don't even notice like someone designed this rug and someone designed that pillow and someone designed your shirt and someone designed you know every single thing in our world and artists are brought in to corporations and big businesses and banks and traditional things to say to teach people how to think creatively and just the value of having art in our lives is something that we need to learn to support and to pay for and to value outwardly not passively that's a whole different learning curve and through this work uh lots of people have come to us asking if we would help advocate for fair artist pay that's a whole other bucket and i say after we secure some spaces then we'll come back and fight for that but i think you know culturally throughout time except really for what we call fine art paying for it, how it works, subsidizing it, supporting it, talking about it, in a lot of ways has felt beside the point. And, you know, we say we don't want to be at odds or fighting for the same, you know, help or support as housing or anything else. We just want to be thought of too. Um, We need the advocacy. We need the voices. That's why we're doing this podcast series so that there's actual artists sharing their actual voices and you know no offense to the media support that we've had we're grateful for it but sometimes some of the artists have said to me god i did an an interview with the boston globe for an hour and in the end the story it ends up that they have one sentence and probably that's true of you as well and look uh media has you know restrictions it needs to keep in terms of like how much words and they can't use everything but here people can they said they want to come back and do it again they want to keep talking and even if they've lost or been displaced or in some cases been displaced two and three times in their career even just talking about it helps people understand it and when people understand it they might support it and whether support is loaning your name to a petition or whether your support is showing up at a community meeting or whether your support is writing a check or all of the above, um, or having a conversation with your neighbor. This is all important. It's part of our being, you know, civic beings and caring about each other and sharing the gifts that artists do every single day. What say you, Bill Madsen Hardy? 
I think that's you know a, a great summary. A great it's a it's a great point that I don't think people appreciate does in our daily lives. And I think if you took art out of the equation, life would be really sad. There'd be a lot more sickness. There'd be a lot more violence. There'd be a lot more shorter lives. There there are places in the world that don't allow art or it's very, very restricted. And there have been periods of time when, when art has been restricted, banned. And those are all pretty sad (laughs) grim situations so let's let's be happy i want to say first of all thank you for coming to have this conversation thank you for all the help that you've done in the arts and culture community before we met during the time we worked on humphrey street and everything since i've learned a ton from working with you and your team brian catherine everyone it's been some amazing uh, touch points in terms of really hard times and really great times. And I think all of this work is really making a difference in people's lives. And if you had ever asked me 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, if a we would be sitting here recording a podcast about arts advocacy, about cultural spaces, no one in my life would have ever believed that. So, um, you know, thank you for the partnership and the generosity and the teaching and the patience. A conversation we had earlier today was about even just the the navigating of different types of culture within this very conversation has been hard, meaning the way that developers talk, and I don't mean you, but I mean people that are like building and dealing with real estate, the way that government talks, the way that artists talk, and kind of the the way that people operate in the world, even though we're all in the same city, we might all even live in the same neighborhood and we speak the same language. Trying to put all that together in cooperation is super difficult. And it takes a handful of people who can translate and speak all of the cultures and all of the languages to get this done. And so you've been a huge part of that. You speak all of the languages. Hopefully we can help some more people as we go. Another time, we'll have another conversation about 119 Braintree Street. We definitely don't have the time to talk about that today, which is a super interesting, super challenging relocation project. I feel like it's our time, and I'm really hoping that we can keep the trajectory going, keeping government and other stakeholders involved, and actually... You know, like we've said with Ethan and a bunch of other people, the housing crisis is super hard to solve because there's only so much land, there's always so much money, there's only so much people that are interested in helping, blah, blah, blah. This cultural space problem is actually pretty easy to solve. We don't need, we need a handful of buildings that are owned in perpetuity. We need a handful of subsidy. We need a handful of people to come to the table and do it together. And then we can kind of just rent them and let them be. It's not, I guess I'm now calling it a finite problem, which means that there should be a finite solution or a handful of finite solutions. Well, let's keep working for that. Great. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And and I'd be happy to, to come back and talk about other projects, other topics. Likewise, it's been a great 
partnership and relationship and it does it does feel much different today than it did even you know three three four years ago where I kind of felt Desperate. alone <laughs> you know in, in in all this and um, you know just having this advocacy uh, is huge and bringing people together because like you said it it needs a diverse set of interests and people you know to, to tackle a problem like this so you know thank you for recognizing that and, and trying to make that happen I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it I can't wait till we open our first live music club <laughs> that's not on even on your agenda <laughs> okay thanks all right thank you Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.